Greetings, everyone, and welcome to our Berean Bible Church podcast. This is a part of our Investigating Jesus series. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, everyone. Happy Sunday. Welcome to Berean. Can we take a moment? There's some other campuses that are joining us by simulcast right now. We got Cincinnatus and Bainbridge and online. So, Green, would you just welcome them this morning? Whew, what a Sunday. It is awesome to celebrate Wally's baptism together. Um, it's a reminder, this is why we're here. This is why we do what we do, to make, say it with me, more and better Jesus followers. And the reason why it's such a big deal, every time we help someone take a step of faith take a step of obedience, whether that's mentoring or baptism or whatever that looks like. The reason is because the path to heaven is hard to find. And I didn't say that. Jesus actually said that. He said the road to destruction or the road to hell is broad and there's many who find it. But the road and the gate to heaven is narrow and there are few who do. So I think it's easy to think, okay, that road to destruction that's really broad, well, it's obviously the atheists and the agnostics and the Satanists that are on that road. But you know who else is often on that road? Good, well-meaning, religious people too. And so that's why this is such a big deal is because Jesus himself came to a religious culture with good, well-meaning people and he's like, hey guys, most of you aren't on the road. The road is hard to find, and there's few that are on it. A little bit about my story. When I was young, when I could first talk, I said I wanted to be a pastor. When I graduated high school, I was ready, and my pastor told me he wasn't aware of any church in the country looking for an 18-year-old pastor, which really disappointed me. So I began preparing for ministry, and it, uh, about a semester into um, my first year after high school, I went to a ministerial institute 500 miles away from home. I got in my little car, I drove to Indianapolis, and I was so excited to begin this journey of preparation for ministry. And I remember getting out of the, my car, I have my luggage, I go into this 13-story uh, institute that I was at. I go in and I meet the leader of the institute, and I'm so excited, and he looks at me and I get this this disapproving glance. I'm like, what rule did I already break? I'm like, is it my car? Is it too sporty? Uh, you know, I, I was trying to think, what rule did I already break? And I had no idea until I got to my dorm room and I began reading the, the rules. And one of the rules is that you always wear a collar. And my sweater I was wearing was collarless. And I remember just being a people pleaser and saying, okay, I got to study all these rules and I got to remember them all because that's the last disapproving look I want to get here. And so I, I did everything they asked of me. In fact, I took my Christian CDs, which the beat they were teaching me was too worldly, and I broke them and I stopped listening to them after I broke them. I, I, I didn't talk to the opposite sex. I fasted every Sunday. I went to class often in my suit and tie. And then that summer when I came home to earn money for tuition, I started doing a lot of landscaping. And when I was mowing lawns, you know what I wore? 
a collared button-down shirt, and khakis because I thought I was honoring God. I thought, if I have to name my business, I'll call it a cut above. (laughs) Now you're chuckling at me, and I don't blame you, and, and it seems absurd, but I believed it with all my heart that what I was doing was right, that my high standards weren't just honoring the people that I looked up to, but they were honoring God. They were pleasing God. God was approving of me through these things. And if you had ever accused me of being legalistic, I actually had a pre-planned answer that I was trained to give you. And I could defend every rule that I was following. And as absurd as that sounds, it's true. But I realize that I am not alone. Because all around the world, including in this very room, are people that are trying to follow the rules to be approved by God. And what, what they don't know, and what I didn't know, is that it can't be done. There is no rule you can follow, and there's no religion you can join that can somehow make you right with God or get you to heaven. In fact, I believe that religion is one of the greatest myths perpetrated on humanity. That sounds kind of odd coming from a pastor, doesn't it? But I don't want you to take it from me. I want you to see how God himself responded when he came into a religious culture. When he left heaven, came to earth, lived among us, came to a religious culture. I want you to see one specific incident that shows us what he thinks of religion and rules and our way of reaching God. So if you would meet me in the book of John, chapter 2, there's a story that we need to look at today. John 2, page 853, there should be a chair Bible nearby you. Uh, You can grab that, turn to 853. I'm going to read out of the New Living Translation that matches the chair Bibles. And if you would like a Bible, please take that home as our gift to you, if you have a collar on. (laughs) Only kidding. John 2. So let me me give you a little bit of background, okay? We're we're spending some time this spring going through part of a firsthand account of Jesus' life. It's written by one of Jesus' best friends, a guy who knew Jesus better than almost anybody. And 50 years after Jesus left, he sat down, he collected his memories and the stories, and and he included them in this book that bears his name. And what's fascinating about John's account is it's a, it's a very intimate portrayal about Jesus. You get a feel for Jesus that you don't get in the other stories about Jesus' life. And most people regard John's account of Jesus' life as the finest account that we have. And so that's what we're in today. Our story picks up when Jesus is fresh and new in the public eye. He's only 30 years old, so he's a, he's, he's a young man. And he makes his foray into a new place uh, publicly. And here's where the story picks up. Verse 13 of chapter 2. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. So Jesus went to Jerusalem. Okay, let me explain a little bit about what this festival or celebration was about. For a thousand years before this time, the Jewish people were in slavery. Their entire nation had been 
not captured by the Egyptians, but enslaved by them. And the Egyptian pharaoh was a harsh slave master. And so the Jewish people for 400 years lived in this slavery that was very challenging. They cried out for deliverance. And finally, God sent a man named Moses to come and be their deliverer. Well, when Moses came, the heart of Pharaoh was very hard, and Moses kept saying, let my people go, and Pharaoh kept saying, no. And this repeated over and over and over, and so God kept doing these plagues on the Egyptians to show, I'm powerful, let them go before I nuke you. And so he kept escalating. Every plague was an escalation, and finally it escalated so much, Pharaoh's finally like, fine, like, get out. Our lives are more important than our slaves, and so they we're about to let the slaves go, and he kept changing his mind. And finally, God had to do his biggest plague, the worst plague, where he said, fine, because you won't let my people go, and I've given you multiple opportunities, tonight, I'm going to take the life of every firstborn son in the land of Egypt. Even of the animals, every flock, every herd, every family tonight will lose a firstborn son. But he said to his, his people, he said, when this death angel comes around to slaughter in this plague, there is a way that you can be rescued. If you take a perfect lamb with no blemish or defect, you slaughter it and you take the blood of that lamb and put it on the doorpost, the death of that lamb will save your firstborn son from death. And so throughout the Israelite community, it's called the land of Goshen where they lived in Egypt, they, they, they did this thing. They killed a bunch of lambs. They put a bunch of blood around the doorpost. And that night, this death angel came through the land of Egypt and he passed over the homes of the Israelites. And there was weeping and wailing throughout the land of Egypt except for this place where the Israelites were living. And God said, I want you every year in perpetuity to celebrate this night where I passed over and didn't kill your firstborn sons. And so every year, the Israelites made a big deal about celebrating Passover. And Jesus, at 30 years old, is excited to go celebrate the Passover. And the way they would do it is they would have this incredibly big festival in Jerusalem. People from around the world would gather, and they would celebrate the night that God passed over and rescued them. Interestingly enough, later in Jesus' life, he would be called the Lamb of God. And he would one day become the final Passover sacrifice whose blood would allow God's judgment to, say it with me, pass over us. So there's just a ton of meaning and symbolism, and I'm sure Jesus is pretty excited to go to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, and he's thinking there's only a few more years left when this Passover is going to change. I'm going to be the Passover lamb, and never again we have to kill another lamb. Never again we have to go through this. I'll settle it once and for all. So he's going to celebrate this with his people. Verse 14. In the temple area, so he arrives to temple where this Passover event would be, uh, all the sacrifices would be offered. He saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. Now, this may not make sense to you. Uh, let me explain what was going on here. When Jewish people would travel from around the world for this festival, the Jerusalem uh, population would explode for this weekend. It was kind of like Watkins Glen for NASCAR weekend. 
right? And there's this surge of people that come in. So there's this surge of people that come into Jerusalem. And you're supposed to bring your own sacrifice. And depending on your economic status, you were supposed to bring what you could afford. So if you're wealthier, you were to bring a bull. If you weren't as wealthy, a sheep or a goat. If you were poor, a dove. But no matter what, you were supposed to bring an animal with no defects to be sacrificed to cover your family's sins from the past year and to pass over. And so there was a lot there, but here's the deal. When people would make this journey to Jerusalem, they didn't have Teslas, they didn't have Fords, they didn't have helicopters or airplanes, they didn't even have bicycles. They had feet, and they had donkeys, and they had to travel a long way. And so to add to their trip with their whole family, to, and they'd often travel in groups of families, to add to the trip, they would have to bring these animals with them. Well, it's one thing to bring your family, but it's another thing to bring these animals, and now you got to cover their, their food, you got to keep finding them water. I mean, there's all this stuff to do with the animals on this lengthy trip. And the problem was this. You would have taken this animal that was valuable to you on this lengthy trip, spend all this time keeping it alive and in pristine condition, get to the temple only to have the temple staff inspect your animal and tell you, this isn't temple certified. It doesn't reach temple standards. You'd be like, you got to be kidding me. And so what you would have to do then is tie up your animal or cage up your bird or whatever and buy a temple-certified animal. So a lot of people would just skip this ridiculous step and they'd just go with money to the temple and buy the temple-certified animal or bird at the spot. And so here's what would happen. You'd come with money and you'd come to the temple and you'd buy your sacrifice. But they wouldn't accept your currency. You had to get temple-approved currency. Well, to get temple-approved currency, you'd have to go to a money changer. And those money changers would say, okay, well, the currency rate today is you, you give me 10 of yours, I'll give, me one, I'll give you one temple coin. Well, you had no option. You had to get the temple currency to get the temple-certified animal. And so you would get fleeced. You'd bring all this money, you'd get exchanged down for a terrible exchange rate, you had no options, you'd get this temple-certified animal that cost way more than it should have. And you'd then go and you'd do your thing. And this event of Passover that was supposed to be this great celebration, you were supposed to experience the best God had to offer for you, instead was this annual rite of passage that felt like you were going to get fleeced, you were going to participate in a scam, and you got to experience the worst of humanity. And this is the setting Jesus walks into when he walks into temple. There's all the temple certified animals. There's all the loan sharks with their exchange rates that are out of control, but they have no competition. And Jesus walks into this setting. Now, if you grew up in Sunday school and you had a view of Jesus as this really sweet, docile, calm, kind, kind of gentle, smiled guy, what you're about to see next may surprise you. Look at verse 15. Jesus made a what? Jesus made a whip from some ropes. Okay, pause there for just a minute. 30-year-old young man going into the temple. People don't know who he is. His disciples certainly do. They're following him, and he's got all these friends and followers with him, and they watch him sit down and take these ropes and begin kind of braiding them together. And I can imagine him being like, what's he doing? 
I don't think he's just doing an art project right now. Why is his face so red? What is he? And then I can imagine one of the guys like, I think he's making a weapon. Like, why would he make a weapon? It's Passover. And then, and then he makes it, you know, and he, and, he, and he twists these together and he braids it. And they're like, it looks like a whip. What's he going to do? Is he going to go ride a donkey? And that's not at all what he was about to do. Look at verse 15 again. Jesus made a whip from some ropes and chased them all out of the temple. I mean, can you imagine this scene? Can you imagine this scene of Jesus with this homemade whip running around chasing these guys out of the temple. He drove out not just the people, he drove out the sheep and cattle. He scattered the money changers' coins over the floor and he turned over their tables. Now, I'm a Bills fan. We jump through tables. Jesus flipped them, right? He flipped these tables. He made this huge scene. And I I just want you to imagine if you're there at temple that day, It was one of the holiest places. No, it was the holiest place in the entire country. It was the holiest weekend. And here comes this 30-year-old guy causing a scene, creating a public nuisance, wrecking the temple economy, harming the temple merchants, releasing the temple sacrifices. And Jesus isn't done. Look at verse 16. Then going over to the people who sold doves, he goes over to the bird guys, he told them, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Now here's what's interesting. In Jesus' anger, in his fury, what he says here exposes not just who he is, but it exposes what the temple's supposed to be. What does he call the temple? He doesn't call it the temple, does he? He calls it what? Father's house. So here's the deal. Here's why Jesus would have referred to the temple that way. It certainly wasn't a house. But ever since God created humans, he had one desire with humans. He made humans to be very much like him, in terms of having mental faculties and intelligence and the ability to ration and reason, the eternal soul. And he made humans, and he wanted something more out of humans than out of animals and out of any creation. You know what he wanted out of humans? He wanted a relationship. And so for the first humans he made, you know what he would do in the cool of the evening? He would come down in that perfect garden we call Eden, and he would take walks with the man and his wife. Would anyone else sign up for a walk with God? I mean, the questions I would ask him, the time I would love to spend with him, and and that was just a normal part of life until the day when the first humans rebelled against God, and that broke. But that didn't break God's desire. It broke his heart, and it broke the world, and it made a mess of things, but it didn't break God's desire to live with and walk with his people. Even further down the road, when his people defied him, And so he punished them by saying, you're going to wander around the wilderness for 40 years. God said, but you know what? I still love you. I still want to live with you. And so if you make me a tent, I'll tent with you. And God gave him the specifications for the tent. You might know it as the tabernacle, but the word tabernacle simply means he tented. And he tented and he lived with his people. When they finally, after 40 years, got into the promised land, they made homes and 
planted fields and did all the rest. And over time, they said, well, it's not fair that God has a tent and we have nice homes. And King David said, God, can I build you a house? He said, no, but you can prepare it and I'll let your son do the construction. And so David prepared, his son Solomon built this gorgeous temple. So it had been destroyed and rebuilt by this time, but it was still this majestic place where God lived. And so Jesus, rather than calls it a temple, says, it's my father's house, meaning God lives here with you. He, he literally lives and dwells and camps and tents with you because he loves you. He wants to be among you. He wants to be with you. And you've turned this place into a marketplace. Like you've taken this house that's meant to be a place of safety and worship and peace and joy, and you have turned it into a scam. And people every year when they come for this event, rather than the joy they're supposed to experience, being in God's presence, celebrating the Passover event, instead they just feel like they're fleeced. They feel like they're tricked and robbed by this temple economy. And it's always been about God wanting to be with and meet with and live with his people. So Jesus is just, I mean, he is going all Hulk, Hulk on him. Verse 17, here's a little side note. Then his disciples remembered this prophecy from the scriptures. Passion for God's house will consume me. Now John was one of those guys and he had that light bulb moment. So imagine he's sitting here watching Jesus just go all rage, all anger, make whip, Right, scatter all the money changers, all the, all the animals. And then there's this light bulb moment his followers have. Like, oh, remember when King David wrote that song? We call it Psalm 69. And in that psalm or song, David said, passion for God's house will consume me. And he was talking about the rescuer of God, the Messiah who would come someday and there would be this moment where he would be so passionate and overwhelmed with that passion for the temple, the house of God, that it would consume him. And they get it in this moment. They're like, oh, today in this place, that prophecy just happened. We just watched this guy we respect get consumed with a passion he refused to hold back. And he caused a big problem. Look at verse 18. This is kind of fun. The Jewish leaders, so these are the guys that are making their living off of this scam. The Jewish leaders demanded, what are you doing? If God gave you authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. Okay, let's think about this for a moment. These guys are like, hey, this is God's temple. If you're really acting this crazy way on behalf of God, then you got to prove that you've come from God and show just do a miracle for us. Now, did Jesus have the power to do a miracle? If you were Jesus, would you have done one right then? Maybe like, okay, fine. Let fire come down and eat you up right now. We'll do that one. Right? There's so many miracles that I would have done right now if I was Jesus. Like, you want to see a miracle? I'll give you a miracle. But Jesus, even though he's consumed with passion for God's house, is very restrained. He always uses his passion 
under control, which is called meekness. He's always, his anger's never out of control. He's not just blowing his top. He's constrained in doing only what needs to be done, and he's always limited by his graciousness and his kindness. And so rather than doing a miracle that would have fried these guys, he instead just responds verbally. And here's what he says. He says, all right, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. Now, these Jewish leaders made their living off the temple. The temple was the holiest site in the land. To this day, the holiest site in Israel, if you take a a visit there, is the temple wall, the western wall. The Jews wail there because their temple's destroyed. 2,000 years, no temple. And so for Jesus to even mention destroying the temple... Like, go ahead, destroy the temple and watch me rebuild it in three days. I mean, it incited them. It infuriated them. Why are you talking about this temple getting destroyed? And besides, you're going to raise it up in three days. This temple took 46 years of construction. And you're claiming that you're going to reconstruct it in three days? Yeah, likely story. So they respond, verse 20, what? They exclaimed, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you can rebuild it in three days? You're crazy. But when Jesus said this temple, this is where John, 50 years later, says, by the way, to my readers, I want you to know what Jesus meant when he said this. But when Jesus said this temple, he meant what? His own body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this. So three years later, Jesus dies, he raises from the dead, and the disciples get hit with this day. They're like, oh, remember when Jesus said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it in three days? Oh, he was talking about himself. Destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this, and they believed both the scriptures and what Jesus had said. Imagine when the disciples click that. And they're like, he's literally prophesying his own death and his resurrection after three days. And then when he pulled it off, they're like, okay, we believe. If you can prophesy, if you can prophesy your own death and your resurrection, and pull it off. Yeah, whatever you say, I'll go with you. And they did, and John looks back on this event, he's like, that was the moment that we didn't get. No one got it. But three years later, they did. There's a few more sentences I want us to read before we finish this text. Verse 23. Because of the miraculous signs Jesus did in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration. Now hold on. The Jewish leaders had just demanded a miraculous sign. Did Jesus give them one? No, he refused to do one on command, but apparently throughout this weekend, he's doing a whole bunch of other miracles. He's healing people who have these physical issues. And because he kept doing those things, many began to trust in him. But Jesus didn't trust them because he knew human nature. No one needed to tell him what mankind is really like. That Passover weekend, Jesus' fan base grows bigger and bigger. The crowds grow bigger and bigger. 
And Jesus was completely unimpressed. Because he knew that they were believing because they saw miracles. And he knew, it says, he knew human nature. What do you think that means, he knew human nature? Any guesses? Do you think human nature tends to be a little bit fickle? You ever followed politics? You know, we, we think a leader's going to save us and turn the country around, and, you know, it only takes about two minutes to realize that's not going to happen. And then we're on to the next candidate, and, and, and every two years, every four years, we put our hope in a different person, and they always just find a way to let us down or we change our mind, and we're, we're fickle. Jesus knows we're fickle. And Jesus just realized he was accumulating fans, but there's a big difference between a fan and a follower. And Jesus wasn't going to buy into fake faith. He wasn't going to buy into people that would start to be religious or follow rules, thinking they're earning Jesus' approval or favor. Here's what happened after Jesus rose from the dead. His disciples struggled to believe it was really him. In fact, one disciple in particular, his name was Thomas. We call him Doubting Thomas. He didn't believe. He's like, there's no way. Like, he was one of those guys who had to see it to believe it. And so Jesus appears in a room where Thomas is there, and he's with the disciples, and he's like, i got to prove to you I'm not a ghost, so he eats some food, and it doesn't drop out of him. And Thomas is still like, I don't buy it. Like, there's no way. I, I watched you die. I watched you die last week. I, I know it can't be you. And so Jesus finally looks at Thomas, and he's like, Thomas, come here, bud. Go ahead. Put your finger in my nail holes. Take your hand if you want. Put it in my side, the gash from the soldier's spear. Go ahead. I got it. I got the gash. I got the holes. And Thomas does that, and he's staggered when he does, and he's like, my Lord and my God. And Jesus is like, Thomas, you just believe because you can see. And then Jesus makes the statement. He said, you believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. You know who Jesus is talking about right there? He's talking about you. He's talking about me. He's talking about Wally. He's talking about people that are willing to follow him without ever getting to see him in person, without ever getting a chance to put your finger in his nail hole and see if he really was crucified and killed and came back to life. And he's like, those are the people. Those are the people that are truly blessed because they have the faith to believe not because of what they see. They believe and accept without seeing. Jesus knows how fickle human nature is. Now, a few years later after this story, Jesus is going to come back for Passover week. And when he enters Jerusalem that time, the crowds have grown so big and Jesus is so popular that they're actually going to put their robes and palm branches in the road and they're going to hail him like a king. We call that Palm Sunday. And Jesus rides in and it's this, it's this incredible moment where all of Jerusalem's like, here's our king. We're ready to follow you. And Jesus is like, no, you're not. I know human nature. So you know what Jesus does three years later when he comes back into Jerusalem, getting ready for Passover? You're never going to guess where he goes. Temple. You're never going to guess what he does at temple. He goes and cleans it out again. 
and he does a second temple purging. It's fantastic. He goes back in, and he causes another scene. And by that point, people were like, okay, all right, this guy is too disruptive. This guy is against all of our religious system. He's supposed to play by the rules. He's supposed to be the head of our nation and our religion, and instead he keeps ruining our religion and ruining our nation. What in the world? And so the crowds, within a matter of a few days, go from saying, Hail, Hosanna, King of the Jews. They go from that to saying, Crucify him. Crucify him. Jesus isn't a fan of fickle faith, big crowds, or corrupt religion. You know, when I read this story, as we investigate Jesus, there's a person who comes to my mind. I think about Karen, your wife, Wally. You heard Wally talk about her in his baptism story today. She was raised in a church, but she was turned off by her experience. She loved God. She just wasn't a fan of what people did in his name. And Jesus can relate to that. That's why he went on a rampage in temple that day. He was so upset that people were using their religion to control others, to take advantage of others, to serve themselves. Rather than true faith in God, which leads to love and care and concern for your neighbor, they were using their religion to control people. You know what's ironic about Jesus? The only times where we see him really angry or hostile are the times when he was with religious folks. And that's ironic, because I imagine if he came to earth today, if he came to earth today, here's how it might look, right? We hear about this guy who claims to be God's son, and he's doing all these cool things, and we watch him, and, and we notice that when he's at a party, he seems really fun and really nice and really gracious, and when he's at the bar, right, he's hanging out with the people at the bar, and, and he's really kind, and he's nice, and he's gracious, and when he's, he's at weddings and he's at, you know, these celebrations and he's at NASCAR and Watkins Glen, he's having a good time. But on Sunday when he goes to church, his face gets red. And he gets all worked up. And he flips over some of our chairs. And he knocks the TV off the stage. And he drives the pastors out of the building. You're like, what is wrong with this guy? He's certainly not a religious man. And Jesus would say, you're right. You're right. See, the day Jesus died, there was something crazy that happened at temple. He died off at another place in Jerusalem, along a highway where everyone could see him naked and bleeding, hanging on that cross. But the day and the moment he died... Darkness covered the land, and there was an earthquake. And you know what happened in temple at that moment? In the temple, there was the holy place where priests would go and do their thing and the sacrifices and all that. All of that was part. But then there was the most holy place, and that was where God lived. That was God's bedroom. And in that most holy place, only one priest, the high priest, could go there only one time a year and talk with God. And do, the, do his thing. And the moment Jesus died, 
there was a barrier that separated the most holy place from everywhere else, and it was this thick veil, this really heavy, thick curtain. And the moment Jesus died, this thick veil rips in half. You know how it rips in half? From top to bottom. As if Jesus, as he dies, he goes, his spirit leaves the cross, goes into the temple, and he does one of these. Enough's enough. Everyone now gets direct access to me. None of this religion garbage to hold people away. You can give him a hand. That's okay. Jesus did that. And he tore that temple curtain in half. So listen. I don't know the kind of Jesus you're aware of. I don't know what you were taught growing up. I don't know if maybe you were... Grew up in Sunday school like I did, and maybe you were taught this sweet, gentle parody of Jesus. And the Jesus we learn about today, that's not that Jesus, is it? Jesus was strong. He was passionate. And there were moments when his anger and rage and passion took action for all the right reasons. He never acted out of control. But he was not afraid to offend those who needed offending. And he used his strength to clear down boundaries between God and people. This Jesus may not fit your stereotype, but I want to tell you, this is the real Jesus. And his courage and his passion can't help inspire us. Maybe we need to be a little bit more like him. Maybe religion should break our heart as much as it breaks the heart of God. Maybe you and I should be exposing corrupt religious systems for what they are, traps for unsuspecting people, often created by people who are insecure and greedy. Religion isn't neutral. Religion's dangerous. And religion prevents so many people from reaching a God who wants to reach them. Jesus that day used his passion to drive out the religious folks so that the poor and the outcasts and the travelers could come in and meet with God. God didn't offer religion to the world. God offered his son. He offered a relationship, a way that he could live with us. My friends, religion cannot save us. Only Jesus can. Religion is man's way of reaching God. Jesus is God's way of reaching us. Can I tell you the rest of my story? Thanks, I'm going to. (laughs) That institute out in Indianapolis after I worked a summer to save up for tuition to go back, they actually relocated to Texas. And I didn't relocate with them. Instead, I landed at a Bible college in this city called Binghampton or Hampton or something, New York. And over the next two years, God began to peel away my religious heart, my self-goodness. And my sophomore year of Bible college, God finally broke through that heart. And I realized I was doing all the right things. But my heart was far from God. 
And, and God took my religion and he replaced it with this new, broken, soft heart. And he gave me this fresh motivation to obey him. I didn't obey him anymore to earn his approval or his favor. I obeyed him just because I wanted to make him smile. I knew he had already accepted me, collar or not. And I am so glad he broke me of my religion. Because I would have been one of the most religious people you had ever met. If I had pastored here as that person, I would have forced my religion on you and my rules on you. And I would have done that on my wife and my kids. And I shudder to think how my life would have ended up if Jesus hadn't rescued me from religion. He released me to have this inside-out faith that's no longer outside-in. And he showed me that religion can't save, but Jesus can. And that's what I hope for you, too. Would you bow in prayer with me? Let me ask you this morning. Why, why are you here? Right, that, that's a personal question. Only you probably know the answer to that question. Maybe you just are here because you're like, hey, it's a good thing. And, and it is, sure, it's a good thing. But what's your motivation for, for being here? It's easy to do the right things for the wrong reasons. Listen, I was a child of God. God rescued me from my sin at four years old. I loved him, but I was still doing the right things for the wrong reasons. Is there a part of you that's, that's weighed down by religion, by obligation, by, by following the rules because you're trying to please God? Listen, Jesus wants to free you of that. I think a lot of us grow really tired trying to earn God's approval. And here's why that's so tiring. We're trying to earn something we already have. God can't accept us any more than he already does. On the cross next to Jesus was another cross with a criminal who was dying the death penalty for a, for a capital offense. He was a bad dude. And as he's dying, he has minutes, hours to live. He looks at Jesus and just says, remember me when you go to your kingdom. Jesus looks at that bad guy and says, today you'll be with me in paradise. That's the type of Savior Jesus is. He doesn't care about your past. He died to forgive and cover it so God's judgment can pass over you. So you can enter relationship with him here and one day you can enjoy eternal life with him forever. Your sin, yes, it's bad. Your past, yes, it's something all of us are often ashamed of. But my friends, Jesus already paid for that. You don't have to anymore. 
He wants to set you free through the forgiveness of his son, Jesus. And all he asks is that you turn to him. Like the thief on that cross did, he just turned to Jesus. And in that moment, he was forgiven and rescued. Have you turned to him yet? Let me ask, if if you've never done that before, it's just a simple act of faith. Let him know you believe in him and you want to be forgiven and he will forgive and adopt you into his family. But I want to ask those of you who maybe you've already been forgiven, you're already his kid, I think that represents most of us, but, but you're weighed down under the rules and obligations of earning God's favor. Jesus wants so much more for you than that. He said, my, my, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden. Today, if you are living under rules, if you're operating under the obligations of religion or being a good person, let me invite you into the freedom of Jesus Christ. The one who gave his life so we could live. The one who died so we could be forgiven. And the one who rose from the dead to say, I just made a down payment on your eternal life. Father, thank you for freeing us. God, my heart grieves that Karen was never able to experience that kind of church family. But I am so grateful that Wally, her husband, can. Lord, may this always be a place where we don't focus on religious obligations and rules. May it be a place where we focus on Jesus Christ and the freedom and the love and the new life that he brings. God, you are so, so good. This week, would you begin to peel away some layers of hard hearts. Release us to serve you. We pray this in Jesus' awesome name. Amen.